Hey, and welcome to Retail Oasis's Retail Wrap-Up. Before we jump into it, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which this was recorded, the Gaimagal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge the elders past, present and future. In today's episode, we talk to Erica Birchhold, who is the CEO of The Iconic. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with The Iconic, it is the pure play Australian, I'm going to call it department store, because it's probably the closest equivalent. Prior to that, she was the managing director of Rebel Sport and Amart Sports, all the while raising a family. So, you know, we are talking to a real boss here. In this episode, we talk about what she's learned running a pure play business how the iconic embraced the key changes they needed to make as a business during COVID, as well as the key customer changes in behavior that they've been seeing. You'll also hear her at the end joking with Steve about wine and champagne. Now, for those of you that don't know Steve that well, um, he is quite the wine professional. And if you stay tuned at the end, he'll give you some great advice on some champagne you should be trying. (laughs) So before we jump into it, be sure to check out last week's podcast, which was with Steve Cox. So Steve ran the Dimmick's bookstore chain and, and he's now the CEO of Destination New South Wales. I think a super interesting time to be stepping into such a role. There's some great insights in last week's episode, particularly when it comes to travel, discretionary expenditure for the consumer and what the future of tourism looks like. You know, a lot of us in retail rely on the tourist dollar to keep centres, to keep retail brands alive. So there's some great snippets of insight in that. Okay, on with the show. Here is our chat with Erica. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, and it's a question we've asked, you know, everyone kind of a starting question, which is really, you know, COVID happened. It kind of, it started off as news that something was up in China, it spread to Europe. And then all of a sudden we were in talks about lockdown here. And, you know, it's quite different being a pure play business. I think every other business we've spoken to so far has been bricks and mortar and all omni-channel. And so you in the iconic business, how did you respond during COVID-19? Like what changed in terms of the culture, the activities, the operating patterns? Mm. Um, and where was your head at, you know, when you found out that this was happening? Yeah, so um, it was a bit of a crazy sort of time. I, I remember we actually had a um, COVID task force in place since February. Um, so because we're part of a global organisation, we had started seeing some stuff happening overseas and hearing some things. And so, um, yeah, so we had that COVID task force in place um, And, you know, our first focus was to keep our staff, um, you know, our team and then also our customers safe. Mm -hmm. Um, So we very early on, like it was kind of mid-March, so a bit earlier than some decided to send anyone that could work from home would. Um, And so I remember the day, um, you know, I I had been with my team at an off-site planning day and that was a Thursday afternoon and said to them at the time, right, tell you what we're going to do tonight, we're going to put a call out and we're going to take one cohort of our team and just tell them at seven o'clock tonight that they're working from home tomorrow 
and just see what happens. Um, and so we picked our cat management team, which are the ones that have high amounts of meetings, need to collaborate, um, samples, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I just wanted to see what would happen if we actually did that. Um, and so, you know, we learned a lot from that and um, learned very quickly and literally on the Monday got to work and announced to everyone, right, we're sending everybody home, gave them all Uber vouchers, um, had an enormous amount of uh, bubble wrap and brown paper and bags and things for people to wrap up all of their equipment, monitors, keyboards, computers, everything, take them home in an Uber with them. Um, and I think we did err on the side of caution by going early. It, it was a couple of weeks later that other businesses started to do that, but we, we would prefer to do that. And that was because we'd had that task force in place um, so early. Um, and I think, you know, our FC is a pretty amazing space and the culture out there is always, um, you know, they're just so such team players and so collaborative and really great at um, executing direction and instruction. Um, we had to overlay some new social distancing sort of measures. Although I like to call it physical distancing because we're still social with yeah. each other. We're just physically distant. Um, and, you know, we so the proximity of the team members that are working together, we had to do split shifts and make sure there was no interaction at all mm -hmm. between that morning shift and afternoon shift so that if one shift were to end up having an outbreak, then that didn't um, necessarily mean our afternoon shift couldn't work, for example. Um, having to do cleaning between shifts and, and deep cleaning. And, I mean, it blows my mind the thought of deep cleaning a warehouse every day <laughs> between mm -hmm. shifts, but they do it and they do it really well. Um, looking at PPE gear, so everything from sneeze screens to... Um, and, and then, you know, where you've got your packing tables and you can normally fit 10 people in that one space, only having five, and then having masks and sanitizer. Um rolled out daily health checks. So every person that works in that FC um, fills out a, a health declaration every day, talking about their own health proximity that they've had to other people that have been tested or, or may have been in contact with someone. Um, everyone has temperature checks um, when they have to enter one of the facilities. Um, so, And then culturally, um, for me as CEO, I felt it was really important for me to be front and centre with our team a lot more. I'm normally pretty front and centre with them, um, but, uh, you know, we normally every Friday afternoon, for example, at four o'clock have a stand-up with the whole organisation where we just give an update on things for half an hour. Um, I also put a, like we have Workplace, which is like Facebook for work. Um, I do a live stream every uh, Tuesday morning now at 930 um, where I can just talk about anything that, you know, they want to know about. It's actually quite cool doing the Workplace live stream um, rather than a Zoom stream because I can see all of the comments while I'm actually... Um, so it, it's actually a really great way of um, talking and interacting with the team even though we're not there together. And we've actually said we're going to keep this sort of stuff going because there's more interaction with everybody there on these live streams in a digital sense as opposed to when we all try and crowd around in the, the kitchen or whatever at the office and no-one's going to kind of heckle someone on the other side of the room whilst I'm standing at the front talking. But they'll do it when like, I'm talking live and then they're heckling each other. So that's actually um, quite good. So, um, And, you know, we just had to... And also I put in place a daily um, meeting first thing in the morning uh, with my executive team. Mm -hmm. I've got some new execs. I've got some longer-serving execs. 
Um, but irrespective of what your tenure is, there's no game plan or there was no precedent on how to deal with this. And so what I knew is that no one of us was going to have the answers or the game plan by ourselves. We were going to need to hold hands, wrap our arms around each other and go, right, let's do this together. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we implemented that as well. Um, now with what's happening in Victoria, um, you know, even like today, like, so last week we made the call that the health declarations for the office team members, even working from home, you've had to fill out a health declaration form every fortnight. Um, that's now going to be weekly so that we can just monitor what sort of contact um, people have had and, and where they've been. Um, we've used a whole heap of online collaboration tools. Like, it's so amazing. And this was one of the reasons why I joined the Iconic, to join this young, funky, dynamic business and learn, you know, let this old dog learn a few new tricks. Watching how they do these whiteboard collaboration sessions with Miro or, you know, all of the feedback on Slack and then even just what you could do with Zoom is, is really amazing. Um, and then, you know, geez, how else did we respond? Look, from a customer perspective, I mean, firstly, making sure that they were going to be safe. Um, but then observing their patterns of behaviour. So where we used to get a big commute traffic, like, you know, kind of 7am to 9am as people were on the way to work, you suddenly don't have that anymore because no-one's commuting. Yeah. Um, and then the amount of people that are looking um, and browsing the app dropped a little bit because people are in front of their desktops a bit more. So they're not just sitting there commuting, looking at their phones. Um, so, you know, what does that mean to our business and we're a data-rich business and understanding which pieces of data are important and what you're going to do with them. Um, and then finally, we, we had some programs of work that we were going to start to, you know, kind of get to later this year or early next year. Um, and we really accelerated those. So developing an outlet because we know that brands may have stock to clear and also customers may have less to spend in future. So how can we tap into that? Launching into the beauty category, which is something we've already been dabbling in. Um, developing the ability to take stock on consignment so that if brands have got stock left and we, we don't see an ability to invest our own cash in purchasing that stock, we can now take that on consignment and still give them an avenue in which to try and, and connect with customers and sell that. So... Yeah, so it's, um, it's been pretty full on, Pippa. <laughs> sounds like it. Sounds massive. Yeah, and like so, and you're right, like being able to react to what happens and if there's a second wave, having that in place. Yeah. But also I imagine having technology at the centre of the culture already has yeah. probably massively helped the business. Yeah. It's kind of everyone is already in it. There's no real education to be done. There's a lot of technology yeah. that's already being used. So. So, so of those points, mm. Erica, which ones do you think are going to more likely stick around? Where mm. some things you're doing precautionary because of the yeah. nature, where other things you're doing, hold on, this is really interesting. Mm. Something we were thinking about maybe doing in a year or two years' time, we brought it forward and we're doing it now. Yeah. What are those things, the things that might stick mm. in the business or mm. effectively improve or change the business? So I think from an operational perspective, I mean, the social distancing and hygiene focus and stuff, that's here to stay, right? So if it's not COVID-19, it'll be something else or something else. Um, and so, you know, that's here to stay. I think flexible working and working from home is going to be a more permanent part of how we work. And we really need to look at where, when and how you do individual work and then where, when and how you do collaborative work. So 
Do you need to do all of your individual work in an office? Probably not. Um, but then how, you know, I think I know me personally, I'm finding it easier working from home because I've worked face-to-face with a lot of the people I interact with and we've developed that relationship, which then makes it a bit easier to make that transition. So how do we allow that to happen? Um, I think fashion is going to be a bit more practical and casual for a while, um, even if people go back to the office. Um, And you may have seen some great campaigns we've got at the moment on, you know, some beautiful dresses with New Balance or Nike footwear uh, or Adidas footwear or, um, and, you know, so it's, um, yeah, I think that's going to change. I think value is going to be important to a customer um, moving forward. Um, You know, they want value for money and that doesn't always mean sale or promotion, but it it might mean they've got a different spend um, sort of threshold. Um, And then those business things that I spoke about, like outlet, I mean, that's here to stay for us. I think that's going to be something that's, um, you know, important for people to get value, but branded value and and shop in a nice environment, not in a kind of bargain basement sort of online environment. Um, And, you know, beauty, I think, is something that will continue to expand. Um, Yeah, so... I think, you know, a lot of operational things will stay and then, you know, some of those business, um, you know, aspects will, will stay as well, business opportunities will just grow. It seems to me like just about most of the things that you accelerated into, you're hanging on to. Mm, yeah. Um, right down, you made the point about hygiene right up front. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I can't see us shifting away from hygiene. Mm. I thought it was kind of interesting, the statistics that the government released on Friday around the number of people who caught the flu last year in June mm. and the mm. number of people who caught the flu this year. You know, yeah. down by 96%. Wow. I, I would believe that because I was chatting to um, the lady that works in my local chemist the other day and she said, oh, Eric, it's so quiet. No one's got flu this year, so we're not selling <laughs> any quadril and, you know. <laughs> I went, oh, wow, okay. So, you know, yeah, I, I didn't think about that, that, you know, these measures we've put in place for COVID actually will help us, um, you know, with, with our normal sort of hygiene and healthiness. So... Yeah. And so, tell me, being in the fashion business mm. and, and, you know, the front end but trend end of fashion, well, pretty well all of it, I think Pip's mm. comment before about you did what the department stores should have done is so incredibly true. But so we've been spending our lives at home and therefore not really having a need to get dressed up. So mm. how does that affect the business? You mentioned a push to casualisation, but how does mm. it affect the business overall? Yeah, I, I think there were things that we um, thought about the business before that we that are just even more true now. So I, I felt personally that we were a bit too reliant on women's fashion as a mix of our business and, uh, and we needed to dial up some other categories. And I just feel even more strongly about that now. Um, and here I am wearing my jagged um, you know, jumper today. Um, I, if I, I, I won't show you, but I've got my Nike tracksuit pants on and I've got um, my new black Ugg boots. Um, as I sit here at home drinking my cup of tea, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like a brand plate. This is product placement right here, Pippa. We should be selling some spots in this. But, um, but you know, I think, yeah, people will be a little... When you're working from home, you don't need to get dressed up. And also people weren't going anywhere. And so why did you need a 
a dress or a pair of heels. So shifting into those other product categories was... Fortunately, we were already in those categories, so it wasn't like we had to roll out something new. Um, And as I said, we we knew that we needed to dial up some of that kind of athleisure, casual sort of wear a lot more. Um, We we could see that. Um, And so we'll continue to do that. Um, And then, you know, kind of pivot into those new categories like beauty, uh, where we've been on the periphery of that, like we've had some beauty and wellness sort of stuff, and now we'll just get into that a lot more. Yeah, and like beauty is such a massive category. I remember also Walmart reporting, this is weird, but they were reporting an increase in sales of tops, not bottoms. Yeah. Because everyone, you know, you're on Zoom, I can just yeah. tuck a jumper on, tape it off, yeah. leave my trackers on. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's beauty. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So you're saying you've seen a, a shift to casualisation, mm. even in you were seeing a shift anyway. Yeah. And shifts accelerated. And you said you're going to be less dependent on female fashion. So mm. does this mean you're consciously moving into male fashion in a more defined way? Yeah, I mean, we've got an amazing men's fashion range. Um, I just said our women's business will continue to grow um, and it's just I think there's a lot more opportunity in some of those other categories. Um, so it's not just men's but kids. I think kids is a real opportunity. I think sport is a real opportunity. Um, and so, like, if I just think, like, think about kids for a minute. I've got three kids. The thought of going to a shopping centre with even one of them, let alone all three of them, is like like hell, like <laughs> I, I don't want to inflict that on anyone else, let alone myself. Um, so if I could have a really great shopping experience online, I think that's a real opportunity and there's no big player in that online. Like the brands do it themselves but to have a multi-branded offer, great, um, you know, shoppability and user experience, easy returns like we have now, quick delivery, um, I think that's a real opportunity. I think that's going to be incremental growth for that whole category, not just us taking share from other people. So, um, yeah, so it's not just men's kids as well. So, so coming back to the point you were making a little bit earlier, what's the future of physical retail look like? So you said it's hard with a young family, but you're also mm. coming out of a businesses which have been predominantly physical retail. Yeah. To kind of think about the future, and there was a, an excellent article that uh, I got sent this morning from the New York Times just talking about shopping centres and some of the rapid decline in shopping mm. centres. And certainly America is way overspaced. Yeah. In retail, you could argue the same thing about Australia. But I guess mm. I'm really curious to know for someone like yourself who's spent a large yeah. part of your career in physical retail to now be working in virtual retail. Yeah. And kind of just to think about how you see the future of the physical mm. Look, I think um, I think there's going to be a place for physical retail, um, and I think the things that we already knew. I mean, you guys know it. You do your retail tour every year. You've got to give people a reason to want to go into a physical store. Like, don't just dish up any old stuff and crap service and terrible displays or whatever. If you're going to do physical retail, do it well. Um, but I think online is certainly, you know, where the real opportunity is I mean, I feel grateful that we didn't have bricks and mortar stores that we were having to manage through this whole pandemic. Um, and from what I read, um, you know, in, in just the press, there's a lot of retailers looking at how big their property portfolios need to be and 
you know, I think perhaps they'll, I don't know, I'd say they'll shrink their portfolios a little bit and focus more on online. Um, You know, I've seen some of them, you know, raising money to do just that, to invest a lot more in online. Mm -hmm. I think they'll probably use their stores as a support network and almost as a bit of a supply chain almost. And so I think they'll figure out a way to coexist there. But I think the things about physical retail still stand today before, as they did before COVID, which is give people a reason to want to go in there and then they, they perhaps will. Um, but for me, I think we can, I, I see my, my role heading up an online business as almost like that of a translator. Every behaviour or reason to go into a bricks and mortar store, there's a way of doing that online. I've just got to translate it. I've got to get that little neural pathway happening between, you know, so whether it be fit or whether it be, um, you know, being able to take the goods there with you, well, we offer three-hour delivery in Sydney um, and, you know, we offer very simple returns. And, you know, so and then how do we help the user experience from the selection and curation perspective and then that personalisation of ranges that are being presented? So, um, so look, I, I wish my bricks and mortar colleagues all the best. I think, um, you know, the, the industry overall, I would like to see it prosper and continue to thrive. Um, I personally, though, I'm glad I'm working in a, an online space right now and, and um, I think there's some real opportunities there for us to inspire and, and um, delight customers. So, mm. I've heard so many different stories about retail businesses that have done really badly in the last three months. Mm. And yet you hear other retail businesses that it's done, they've done amazingly well. And yeah. um, certainly, you know, late March, April, everyone was in varying states of mm. panic. Yeah. But, but yet, you know, if you look at some of the some of the destination retailers focusing in home, focusing mm. in activities around the home, DIY, yeah. car, home home office, hobbies, all those, they yeah. seem to have had the best three months of their, of their year. Mm. I mean, some of those retailers were getting boxing days every day of the week. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of interesting. Did you experience anything like that as well with sort of some things, some days or, or some areas that just absolutely went off? Look, some days were dreadful and some days were amazing. Um, and, you know, really some categories were dreadful and some categories were amazing. So, um, you know, I think it was a bit of a, um, you know, mixed bag. Um, what I will say, though, is it depends where you are. As an online business, it depends at what stage of the life cycle you're in. And so for us right now, um, yes, we want to ride the wave of, of that sort of top-line growth, but we're on a real path to, you know, financial sustainability, um, you know, being a profitable business, um, you know, managing and, and being mindful of our cash position. Um, and so we won't just go and chase those sort of sales numbers without knowing that it's going to be a financially sustainable, um, you know, kind of exercise. So, um, yeah, so we are, I, I think we've got a good balance between chasing that top line and, and delivering on the bottom line. Mm. Right. Mm. That's quite a change, isn't it, for the business? Mm. Yeah, I think you see a lot of tech businesses, I think, um, you know, when they start, they, they're not, it's not their key objective um, to, you know, make a profit straight away. If, if they did have that as a key objective, they probably wouldn't invest or imagine in the way that they do. And so would the iconic be 
such a, a fabulous business with all of the bells and whistles that we've got um, with such great market share if we had have had that nine years ago when it was being established? Probably not. Um, and so I think it's fabulous that investors of these sort of businesses, when they start them, are quite patient. Um, and But now, you know, nine years on, um, you know, that is, and we're now part of a publicly listed company, that, that is um, mandate. And um, and that's one that I'm proud to say, you know, we're going to step up to and deliver. We want to be financially sustainable and here for a long time. I don't just want to serve our customers for the next five years and employ our staff for the next five years. I want to do it for the next 50. And in nine years, we've been able to establish ourselves with, in a way that probably Myers and DJs took 100 um, and, you know, now we take the next step. So. Mm, mm. It's interesting because that sounds like, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was like what have you learned in what I would call omni-channel retail that really apply, what disciplines apply to mm. your plan. I imagine that would be one of the biggest disciplines coming out of Rebel and Super Retail yeah. coming into a startup or even mm. into a startup is kind of yeah. one around not just chasing sales but also profitable sales? Yeah. I think I like to call us um, a mature startup but a young retailer. Yeah. And there's actually not many retailers in that sort of space here. So I feel like we get to kind of carve our own path. And so I take a little bit that I've learnt here and then a little bit that I've learnt now at Iconic and then we, you know, try and um, mould that into our new sort of way forward. Um, you know, some of the things I, I've noticed, you know, customers don't talk about channels. They just focus on what they want and, and when they want to. And I think as retailers we get very obsessed about omni-channel and, you know, um, online versus bricks and mortar and, um, and you know, they, they're just, they're not even having that conversation. They don't say I'm going online shopping today and I'm going bricks and mortar shopping tomorrow. Um, you know, I think the investment that the Iconics made over the past nine years has really set us up well to be at the forefront of the future of retail. And, um, you know, I know all of them are going to invest very heavily and, and get there. And I read an article where Paul Zara from the ARA recently was saying that what was going to take around 10 years for, you know, those buyers to do is probably going to happen now in, in two. Um, so, you know, they're going to run pretty hard at it. Um, but I think bricks and mortar and, and online, re I mean, maybe we can help each other like there's no reason why we couldn't have a b2b relationship with some of those businesses and you know do you know what we're really good at we could do that for them um and you know i i think i've also learned everybody always talks about retail being really fast paced i mean you guys know that you've gone and seen all of the best retailers in the world retail it is detail and it is super fast and you've got to be across so many different things online retail is like whole next level. It's like supersonic because the like if you think bricks and mortar, if a customer comes in and purchases, you might have their data, you might not. Um, online, you have everybody's, mm -hmm. and so having that much stuff that you could measure um, is just you know full on. So you've got to really be able to distill it down, and that's probably some of the things that I learned in in bricks and mortar, like just saying, right, here's all this noise. Now, what's actually really the most important thing here? Out of those 100 things we could look at, what are the three that are really going to shift the dial? Um, you know, a lot of the, even just fundamentals and processes and things like that, just they're not really, um, you know, bricks and mortar lessons I learned. They were just retail sort of fundamentals that I've learned over the years and, um, you know, just rolling some of that sort of stuff out and team structures and org stuff. Um, 
So, yeah, it's... Um, so I, I guess I've just been able to pick and choose lots of different things and just create this whole new sort of way forward. It's quite exciting. Yeah. I'd just like to pick up on the point you raised a minute ago mm. about being, let's call you a mature startup, a new mm. retailer. But um, we have a, a, certainly a recent history mm. in this country of lack of investment, mm. lack of innovation and lack of uh, really what I think is pure entrepreneurialism where people go, yeah. I've got an idea, I'll, I'll get in and do it and make something of it. But yet mm. there's also been some extraordinary successes, you know, apart yeah. from yourself, you've seen you know, Atlassian, I mean, how successful yeah. it's been. And now what we're seeing with Afterpay, all playing in the technology space. Yeah. Not that we don't have the people and the ability, we, we seem to have a little bit of a, a shortage in confidence from an investment point of view is the mm. way I look at it. Well, maybe it's just the culture of this country. We're not actually prepared to watch people have a go and fail. I think there is a bit of that. Um, I remember asking my boss, um, Patrick Smith, when we when GFG were IPOing and, and we're on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, and I remember him saying, you know, I said, oh, why, you know, that? And I remember him saying that particularly in that sort of market, investors are a lot more patient and open-minded around investing in businesses like this. Um, and, you know, I, I just see, you know, there, there isn't necessarily that same sort of patient. Even, you know, you look at all of the articles, like I feel like the press try and crap all over retail a bit sometimes here and I'm like, God, whose side are you on? Like, you know, come on, let's talk this up a bit. Let's, you know, try and be supportive and positive and, you know, not naive, but let's, you know... Um, yeah, let's let's you know see the glasses half full, um, and yeah. So I, I think we're fortunate that we've had investors that have been patient and playing a long game. Um, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting that um, there is a staggering amount of potential in a business like mm. ours, and and yet and a massive amount of growth in our marketplace. Yeah, in the digital commerce space and pretty much mm. every retailer we talk to has pretty much said, indirectly or indirectly, that it's been the retail, the digital retail activity that mm. has saved them in some cases yeah. or, or added added to it. And yet mm. I really feel that, you know, and we know that our digital numbers are still well under international market. Yeah. But it just strikes me that it's been, there's been a level of reticence, a level yeah. of commitment to really yeah. support those people and get in and make it make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, I look. I agree. I think, um, and it, it's it's amazing actually being in this techie sort of world. Um, you know, I didn't realise how different it would feel being in here from when I was outside. But it, it it actually really is quite different, and it's just a very different vibe and a very different um, you know way of operating and um, and going about things. And you know, I, I look in my prior. Like, you know, I've worked in retail for over 20 years. I've never really experienced um, a tech world like what I am now. Like, it's just it's just so different. It's it's incomparable um, to what I, I've had before. And I just wish there was more of that. Yeah, the difference between retail embracing tech mm. and tech coming to retail. Yeah, yeah. And then pulling yeah. someone like you across to yeah. get the kind of leadership. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. um, you know, tech was the one area I was quite daunted about when I 
was joining the iconic because I was like, what the heck do I know about leading a tech team? Um, and wow, there's going to be these cool, clever, funky people, and they are. Um, and but they just really embraced me and took me on the journey, and and just the way they think, they're not what I, they're not what I would call tech people. They're like kind of customer journey. I don't know, experts or, you know, they're just constantly thinking about customers and what they might do and how you could tweak this a little bit and, and see what happens then. And, mm. yeah, it's just quite amazing the way they think. Mm. What's been the biggest thing that you've learned, you know, like kind of moving into that tech space that you mm. could share? Yeah, I think um, probably that um, tech is not tech as you know it. Um, you know, so it, it is just quite a different world and I think you've got to give them a bit of licence to just have a play and just, you know, break things, as you said, Steve, or, you know, they actually don't break, um, you know, <laughs> too much. But, you know, just to really be curious, I guess, um, that's been really um, eye-opening for me. Um, the approach to marketing in, in, in the digital space as well has been quite eye-opening for me as well, like just seeing, um, you know, how how much detail we could drill down into when it comes to marketing spend and customer cohorts, um, you know, et cetera. Um, also that I, I think people feel like um, online, like, is an invisible sort of business. I don't know what they think happens, like, behind the scenes, but it's like they don't realise that we've got a lot of staff. Like, we, we have over 900 people work for us, and that blows people's minds that we've, you know, it's, I'm, I'm like, well... How do you think we get everything done? Like, just because we don't have shops doesn't mean we don't have people that work for us doing the ranging, liaising with suppliers, doing the marketing programs, picking and packing the orders, um, you know, like all, all of that sort of stuff, HR teams, finance teams. Um, so that's been pretty eye-opening that people are just really amazed that there's, like, teams of people. Like, I think they think it's just, like, ten people or something um, <laughs> working in our business. So, um, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So I'm going to ask the final question. Mm. The question I ask um, at the end of each of these, which is really like what advice for businesses do you have pers- from your personal experience at the mm. moment, those that are re-gearing up on the back of COVID that have gone through a lot, what would you share from your experience that maybe they need to think about or mm. yeah. they don't need to learn? Yeah. I, I think just... Think about your cash wherever possible to make sure you're investing in the things that will really make a difference. Um, and so, you know, you, you have to get quite um, focused and objective when it comes to prioritisation, for example, like, and, and, you know, try not to do too many things. Just really, you know, look at your, your company's cash like it's your own. Would I spend this if it was my own money? Would that give, you know, a return on investment, you know, in these sort of times, um, you know, so it's that's not the attitude to have all the time, although it's a good one to have most of the time. But, um, you know, you do want to have imagination and creativity as well. But in times like a global pandemic, I think just be really clear on what is your priorities and, and um, what you're going to focus on. And, you know, sometimes what you say no to is more important to what you say yes. So... Yeah. yeah, definitely. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so very much for joining us this afternoon. I mean, it's been an excellent chat. I've got a lot some great advice. Mm, thank you. Mm. 
Thank you. Now, next time, like, uh, you know, we can finish this call as we started. Like, I thought we were going to have champagne or something on this <laughs> Zoom call. And so, Steve, what, what champagne would you be advising us to drink next time? Oh, well, you know, favourite brands? Yeah, so for, uh, anyone not, for anyone watching this, Steve is the ultimate familiar. He can tell you anything about any sort of wine or champagne or whatever. So, Steve, what champagne? I've got my pen ready, right? Well, what am I drinking next? Well, when we actually <laughs> caught up a couple of weeks ago on Friday night for a Zoom On Zoom, campaign, everyone, we were socially distancing. <laughs> um, yes. I actually thought the bottle I bought that night was pretty special, which was Louis Roderer. Yeah. And I say that because it's an incredibly successful, long-established family business. Yeah. One of the few <laughs> major, major um, vineyards in the FNA area that is yeah. and has been family-owned for, for nearly 200 years, which is extraordinary when you think of the mm. size of it. And it's really Yes. Yeah. Whenever you okay. hear talk about Dom Perignon, they always talk yeah. about Crystal, yeah, Crystal. Yes, Rotary. yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That would well, be... it is only Monday at 10 past four in the afternoon, <laughs> so I guess, you know, I'll finish my cup of tea mm -hmm. uh, and then I might take the Ugg boots off and crack open a bottle of um, Rotary. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Erica. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye. Bye. So that was our conversation with Erica from The Iconic. If you enjoyed the chat, we'd love you to rate and review it. Plus, subscribe to it and you'll automatically be notified when the next episode is up. On that note, next week we're going to be talking to Donna Player. Now, Donna is, I would coin her a merchant queen, though I'm sure she wouldn't call herself that. She ran merch at Big W, then David Jones, and most recently she stepped into the cult brand Camilla, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with. It's a huge success story, I think, of this country, as well as being on the board of Baby Bunting and the Accent Group. So we will be talking to her next week, and the episode should be out next Tuesday. Now, if you want to learn more about Retail Oasis and what we're up to, head to our website, which is www.retailoasis.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and we're also on TikTok. There are some pretty hilarious videos on there if you want to check them out. We'll see you next week.